This is Our American Stories, and we love talking about work, entrepreneurship, and taking care of each other. And this next story combines all of those things in a very special coffee shop, Biddy and Bo's Coffee in Wilmington, North Carolina. And it's run by people with intellectual and developmental disabilities who might otherwise not have a choice to work. And today we have on the founder of Biddy and Bo's Coffee with us, Amy Wright. Amy, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for that nice introduction, Lee. I'm glad to be joining you today. Well, Amy, before we get into the business, the idea, this beautiful story, tell us a little bit about yourself and your family, where you grew up, and and how you got to this place where you were thinking about doing something like this. Sure. Well, I was born in New Jersey, uh, but I spent very little time there. My family quickly moved on to Erie, Pennsylvania, where I spent... Uh, through fifth grade, we lived there, and then uh, my family decided to move south, and um, we settled in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where I spent the rest of my years uh, through high school, and uh, I'm the oldest of five children, so we had a really, you know, fun upbringing, um, very tight-knit family, and I just I loved my childhood, and even back then, uh, my parents say I had quite the entrepreneurial spirit because <laughs> it was not uncommon for me to host weekend talent shows where the whole neighborhood would get involved or, um, you know, do little uh, lemonade stands uh, every weekend. So I always loved small business and um, just trying to try new things and involve my siblings. So that was that was my upbringing. Uh, when I decided to go to college, I wanted to major in musical theater. I was very uh, into the arts and ended up going to the Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music, where I met Mr. Wright, I like to say, my husband, Ben Wright, and I met there during my senior year in college, and we just fell in love instantly. We were um, We met in September. We were engaged that New Year's Eve, and we married in May. And uh, after that, we moved directly to New York City because I wanted to pursue acting at that time. And and Ben had had a professional acting career prior to meeting me. And so um, moving back to New York City was a no-brainer for him as well. So we moved um, back to New York. Well, I moved for the first time. He moved back to New York. And um, we pursued acting careers and did that for a while and realized that we were spending more time apart than together because of different jobs that came up. And so uh, after about a year and a half of doing that, we decided we were going to settle down in the South, closer to my family, and um, have kind of a more typical life that way. And so we did that, and we hadn't been there but a few months when um, Ben's agent called from New York and said, do you want to... um, go on a national tour of a show called State Fair, which uh, he ended up playing the Pat Boone role in that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, "He said, well, I'm interested, but I'm not leaving my wife again after having spent the first year and a half of our marriage apart from each other so much. So I ended up auditioning for the show, and we I got in the show, and we ended up traveling the country doing that. And the show actually ended up going to Broadway, and I had my little taste of Broadway, and... Um, 
kind of checked that box and said, okay, let's start a family. So <laughs> after that, we ended up back in North Carolina again and um, started raising a family. So, and when we ended up back in North Carolina at that point, we settled in Wilmington. So we've been here in Wilmington, North Carolina, just over 20 years and um, started our family here and, and um, have four beautiful children, um, two teenage daughters, one that's going off to college this fall. Uh, the second one is going to be a senior in high school. And and then uh, Bo was born, he'll be 13 in July, so um, he came along and, and then uh, five years later, his little sister, Jane, which we ended up calling Biddy because she's so itty-bitty. Um, so our kids range in age from 7 to 18, um, and I can, you know, share more about them, but I, I, feel, I don't want to ramble too much. Let me know. <laughs> feel no, free no, to tell, <laughs> tell, us, uh, you tell us a little bit about about the, the four of them, what they're interested yeah. in. Yeah, they're the joys yeah. of your life, and I think it's people who love yeah. life and love kids like you do that also love these special needs kids. So talk yeah. about those kids of yours. Yeah. So my kids are amazing. Um, b- before Bo was born, uh, Ben and I had had very little exposure to people with disabilities. You know, back when I was growing up, um, I, the kids who attended the public high school that I attended that had special needs were really um, kind of tucked away. And so you know, I look back on those years and I really feel like I missed out on forming some meaningful relationships with people who I would have been great friends with, but just had never been exposed to. And um, so when Bo came along and he was diagnosed with Down syndrome, Ben and I were paralyzed for a while because we hadn't really never known anybody with Down syndrome and were scared of what we didn't know. And spent, you know, a while educating ourselves about the diagnosis. And, you know, looking back on that, um, it was a very scary and um, (sighs) embarrassing time. You know, when I look back and I think about how we reacted at first because of what we didn't know. Mm -hmm. And um, the the interesting blessing um, that followed was that Biddy was born with Down syndrome too. And so um, by the time we had Biddy's diagnosis, you know, we were so excited because we knew what Down syndrome was and we knew what a blessing bow was in our lives. And we were ready and and just so excited that Biddy was joining our family too and that she also had Down syndrome. Well, when um, we come back, you hold that thought right there. When yeah. we come back, more with Amy Wright. And that's the founder of Biddy and Bo's Coffee in Wilmington, North Carolina. And already, folks, you're getting a a taste for the heart and the soul of this lady. And know that in this country, uh, the chances of a a young person uh, and a baby being diagnosed with Down syndrome and coming to live is very low. Uh, Upwards of 70% of kids are terminated before they're born. And we like to talk about that here on the show and educate people about the, the joys and beauty uh, that, that uh, kids who are born with disabilities uh, can bring to a family and to a community. This is Our American Stories. More with Amy Wright and her wonderful story after these messages.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we continue our conversation with Amy Wright. And we were talking with Amy about the birth of Bo and Biddy, both diagnosed with Down syndrome. She had two older children, Lily and Emma Grace. And so I think the first thing I wanted to talk about before we get to the coffee shop, Amy, is the in-between part. You, you find out these, the, these, these two children have Down syndrome. You learn from the first. The, the second's easier. How did your kids deal with this at first? And also your family and friends. Talk about the, the folks around your family and the reaction to these new children and the new challenges that they were bringing to the family and also the opportunities and blessings. Right. Well, interestingly, you know, Lily and Emma Grace were still quite young when Bo was born, and we made the decision that we weren't going to address the fact that Bo had Down syndrome with them out of the gate, because knowing that they didn't know anything about Down syndrome just as we didn't, we just wanted them to love him and and not be scared of what they didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so they spent the first, gosh, I mean, over a year we didn't talk about the fact that he had Down syndrome. Now, I will say, looking back on that, I kind of regret that because I think that it's really important to to talk about that and to, you know, to reframe how people feel about Down syndrome and other disabilities. But again, Ben and I were kind of still in that learning curve phase and weren't sure how our girls would deal with it. What we found was, you know, they loved Bo just, just because they, he was their brother, and it didn't it didn't matter, you know, when we did finally talk about the fact that he had Down syndrome, it didn't change anything. Maybe it even deepened their affection for him because they realized all that he had overcome um, because he was born with bilateral cataracts in both eyes and had gone through numerous eye surgeries as an infant. They were worried about things like that. They weren't worried about whether or not he had an extra copy of the 21st chromosome. Right. And then, you know, by the time we had the diagnosis with Biddy, they were, you know, overjoyed again, like Ben and I were, because we knew Down syndrome and we knew what we were getting into and we knew what a blessing this was going to be to have a second child with Down syndrome. You know, looking back, I think there were a lot of friends um, that kind of grieved as Bo was born and there was a lot of sadness and a lot of um condolences, which looking back again is kind of is ridiculous, but people around us didn't know Down syndrome either. And I think they were grieving the life that they thought we weren't going to have as we did for a little while. But just any time you spend time with Bo and Biddy, even as an infant, all of a sudden your perspective changes and you realize that it doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. You know, this, this child is just created perfectly and beautifully, and um, there's so much to celebrate. We have found that anybody who spends time with our family, their hearts are changed. And so, you know, and I guess kind of leading to why we opened Biddy and Bo's Coffee Shop, we wanted to multiply that feeling. We wanted other people to experience not only our kids, but everybody else that has an intellectual disability so that someday when that parent welcomes their baby into the world and the doctor comes in and says they have Down syndrome, that they don't have that reaction Ben and I had when we welcomed Bo because they know what Down syndrome is. They've been to Biddy and Bo's Coffee. They've met somebody there that works um, that has just opened their eyes to 
a whole new world. Um, and so that that's kind of our greatest motivator in, in creating this coffee shop is changing the way people feel about people with disabilities. It almost sounds like a ministry for you. You know, I, I, I meet yeah. people and I tell them all the time they're creating ministries. And it doesn't have to be a church and a steeple. It's just it has to do with love. It has to do with bringing people together and very, very often getting people to see something they might not have seen before through that power of love. And I just, I'm still, I mean, I'm, I'm practically in tears because it's, and not sad tears, just tears of, of joy that you yeah. get watching, watching just something beautiful happen. Talk about yeah. that day-to-day coffee shop experience. Talk about what you see each day. By the way, who makes the place run? I'm, I'm fascinated. Yeah. And who are the customers? Well, the place is completely run by people with intellectual disabilities. So we have employees that have autism, cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, uh, fetal alcohol syndrome. We have all, you know, all kinds of diagnoses. But they are so capable and they are hardworking and they have learned their jobs so thoroughly that they run this shop completely self-sufficiently. So someone will take somebody's order. Somebody else will make the beverages. Somebody else will um, call out the order when it's ready or deliver it to the table. Um, somebody might be greeting people at the door, but um, they are a well-oiled machine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we have tons of regular customers that come in and have formed relationships with our team. Um, you know, lots of hugs and high fives all the time. But then we also have this interesting phenomenon of people that are traveling from all over the country some from outside our country, to come experience what's going on here because it's really special. That's always a thrill for our team, too, to see, you know, how people, you know, maybe for the first time in their lives, not only are they being treated with respect, but they're they're being treated like celebrities, you know, like they, <laughs> like heroes. And, yep. uh, you know, they, people recognize them. They come in with their cameras and they want to get pictures and autographs with our team. It is amazing how that changes the way somebody feels about themselves when they feel valued. You're no doubt about it. And what a better way to express that through this coffee shop. And you you don't have a a drive-through, and I found that fascinating. And what's the reason for no drive-through? Yeah, well, we just want the the whole motivation behind this is to bring people together and to have that experience of spending time with somebody that's different from you. And so you can't really achieve that as well in a drive through Sure, there's that quick moment, but this is a, the kind of place where you come in and you have a conversation and you see walls start to come down and you see relationships start to form. And so it's very intentional. We don't have a drive through um, Of course, that would boost our business if we did, but we we just do things differently here. And, um, you know, people will line up, people will line up out the door on the weekend just to come in here and experience this. That's a beautiful thing. Tell me, uh, if, you, if you can, a favorite story uh, that our audience would love to hear uh, from sure. that coffee shop. Well, I mean, one of my favorites is that there um, was a young couple that came in uh, months ago and were sitting at our counter and she was pregnant and um, one of our employees, Elizabeth, who has Down syndrome, was behind the bar, and she's just so loving. Anyway, she was hugging the mom and, you know, just being real sweet with them. And um, as the as the mom left, the pregnant young woman left, she said, um, 
you know, this baby we're expecting has Down syndrome too. And, uh, you know, it still gives me goosebumps to talk about because I think that's just such a wonderful experience for her to have had, to have spent that time with Elizabeth and have her fears maybe dissolved, you know, to see. I mean, I remember when Bo was born wondering, would Bo ever walk? Would he talk? You know, what would he achieve? Things that you you start worrying about as a parent. And for, for that young mother to sit there and see Elizabeth not only walking and talking, but holding a job and earning a paycheck and being trusted with responsibility, I mean, that had to have been life-changing for that mother. Yep, no doubt. And and with a minute or two left that we have, talk to anybody out there who is in that position right now. They're, they're pregnant. They've found out that their child's going to have a severe learning disability. Talk to that mom directly if you can. I just would say that, you know, we all have obstacles. We know as life goes on that things can happen to us and and change us, whether that is physically or emotionally or spiritually, and it, it will come when you least expect it. The thing about getting a diagnosis when your child is born is that you're kind of handed that playing card and, and you know what you're up against, but the reality is, you know, I have all kinds of obstacles I face with my teenage daughters that don't have intellectual disabilities, but there are challenges we face. Bo and Biddy, I kind of knew because with Down syndrome, I knew what some more specific challenges would be, but it, they're no different than any other child that, that you raise. You're going to face moments when things are tough. You're going to face all kinds of celebrations, but, you know, the fact that God created each of us perfectly and wonderfully, and there is, he doesn't make mistakes, and and the way that Bo and Biddy were created was quite intentional, and, um, you know, we just have to learn to embrace differences. I think as a nation, we need to do that more, you know, it's just, we, we need to recognize that each of us was created perfectly and beautifully in our own way and um, and just love one another. And I think that's the greatest lesson I've learned through raising Biddy and Bo. This is Our American Stories. And if you want to see and hear more of what we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And again, thank you, Amy Wright. And what a message of love. What a story. And it doesn't get better than that, folks. Once upon a time, a song had melody and rhyme, and lovely ballads used to fill the air. The songs were sweet and lyrical, and sang about the miracle of love and bloom and love beyond despair. But gone are the June songs, the high-high, the moon songs, and baritones who used to sing romantic are singing songs more frantic than romantic. A one, a two, a three, a clock, a four, a clock, a rock. You gotta sing rock or else you go in hot. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, roll. Throw away your senses and your self-control. Well, brother, I've got news. Mr. Cole won't rock and roll.
And no, he won't. That's not King Cole. And you're hearing him at his heyday. He was singing there in the live from the Sands Casino in Las Vegas record from 1960. This was during the heyday of Sinatra and the Rat Pack. And it's Cole's elegant voice, rather than his brilliant piano playing, that was the focus at this stage of his career. As a pop singer, Cole had the audience in the palm of his hand like almost no other entertainer of his era, save perhaps for the chairman of the board himself. If he doesn't call his girl... And we're talking about and celebrating the music of Nat King Cole because on this day in history, in 1965, Cole died. Now when Tin Pan Alley serenades a beauty Do they sing of Rosemary our sweet Lorraine No, they dedicate a hymn to Tutti Frutti <laughs> Who's as tender as a dame from Mickey Splane Born in Montgomery, Alabama, Nat King Cole had three brothers and one sister. When Nat was four years old, he and his family moved to Chicago, where his father, Edward, became a Baptist minister. Nat learned to play the organ from his mother, the church organist. He began formal lessons at 12 and eventually learned not only jazz and gospel music, but also Western classical music. He performed from Bach to Rachmaninoff. Cole began his performing career in the mid-1930s while still a teenager, adopting the name Nat Cole. He left Chicago in 1936 to lead a band, Shuffle Along. His older brother, Eddie, a bass player, soon joined Cole's band, and they made their first recording in 1936. When it suddenly failed in Long Beach, California, Cole decided to remain there. He later returned to Chicago in triumph to play such venues as the Edgewater Beach Hotel. Cole's first mainstream vocal hit was the 1943 recording of one of his compositions, Straighten Up and Fly Right, based on a black folktale that his father had used as a theme for his sermon. Johnny Mercer invited him to record it for his fledgling Capitol Records. It sold over 500,000 copies, proving that folk-based material could appeal to a wide audience. took a monkey for a ride in the air the monkey thought that everything was on the square the buzzer tried to throw the monkey off his back but the monkey grabbed his neck and said now listen jack straighten up and fly right straighten up and fly right straighten up and fly right cool down papa don't you blow your top ain't no use in diving what's the use of jiving Straighten up and fly right Cool down, Papa, don't you blow your top the told the In 1946, the Cole Trio paid to have their own 15-minute radio program on the air And it was called King Cole Trio Time It was the first radio program sponsored by a black performing artist Beginning in the late 1940s, Cole began recording and performing pop-oriented material for mainstream audiences 
in which a string orchestra often accompanied him. His stature as a pop star was cemented during this period of hits such as Christmas Song, Nature Boy, Mona Lisa, Too Young, and his signature song, this one, Unforgettable. what you are Unforgettable Though near or far Like a song of love that clings to me How the thought of you does things to me Never before has someone been more unforgettable. Nat King Cole was a black man, and to appreciate what that meant and what his career meant, you have to imagine a time when American music, like American schools and neighborhoods, were segregated. Record sales were measured on three separate charts in Billboard magazine. Pop music was white. Hillbilly music was country, and R&B, or race music as it was called back then, that was black. The thing about Cole was that he was absolutely a black man, says historian Roger Wilkins, who grew up black in the 1940s. He conked his hair, he processed it, he smoothed it out all shiny. Some of us, I included, a view that guys who conked their hair were just escapists. With Nat Cole, you'd say, well, that's okay. He does it because it's part of the thing that he's selling. And Nat King Cole crossed over. He crossed over as a handsome, debonair man who exuded sex appeal, and that was something new. Black people were expected to sing comedy songs and minstrel-type songs or blues or songs about work, said a music historian. But it was very, very unprecedented for a black man to come out and sing Cole Porter or sing George Gershwin or the great theatrical songs. He had this great sort of romantic aura about him, which was not what black performers of either gender were encouraged to do back then. And that's the thing about Nat King Cole. He did it his way. And let's hear another one of those great hits of Cole's. Let's take a listen to Mona Lisa. men have named you You're so like the lady with the mystic smile Is it only cause you're lonely they have blamed you For that Mona Lisa strangeness in your smile Do you smile to tempt a lover, Mona Lisa? Or is this your way to hide a broken heart? Many dreams 
I've been brought to your doorstep They just lie there And they die there This is Our American Stories. More on the life of Nat King Cole after these messages. Are just a cold and lonely Lovely work of the best get your kicks on route 66 this is our american story and we continue our celebration of nat king cole and we love talking about music and arts and sports here on our american stories in american history and business everything that we love about being american and we love celebrating beautiful things and my goodness Nat King Cole singing and piano playing is simply beautiful. By the way, Cole was successful. Will Friedwald, a great music historian, said that in the years between Bing Crosby and Elvis Presley, Cole was the most successful American singer of the time. Quote, he is without a doubt the single biggest record seller of his generation, Friedwald said. The only one that comes close is a generation later, Elvis. I mean, Nat Cole just has hit single after hit single, and nobody could come near him, even Sinatra. And it's true. So through the 1950s, Cole continued to rack up successive hits, selling in the millions throughout the world, including Smile, A Blossom Fell, and this song, Pretend. And you're happy when you're blue It isn't very hard to do And you'll find happiness without an end Whenever you pretend Remember anyone can dream Nothing's bad as it may seem The little things you haven't got Could be a lot If you'd pretend You'll find a love you can share One you can call all your own Just close your eyes, she'll be there 
never be If you sing this melody You'll be pretending Nat King Cole also broke the TV color barrier. On November 5, 1956, the Nat King Cole show debuted on NBC. The variety program was one of the first hosted by an African American. Beginning as a 15-minute pop show on Monday night, the program was expanded to a half hour in July of 1957. Despite the efforts of NBC, as well as many of Cole's industry colleagues, Ella Fitzgerald, Harry Belafonte, Mel Torme, Peggy Lee, Eartha Kitt, Tony Bennett, all of them appeared on the show. And by the way, Americans were watching the show. But there was a problem. No sponsor would step up and advertise on the show. They were afraid of boycotts. As the great Nat King Cole told reporters, Madison Avenue is afraid of the dark. And that's just got to be one tough thing to live past and through, that a country that loves you also wants to punish you just for the color of your skin. By the way, he loved playing with great white singers. There was no race. Let's take a listen to a duet with a younger Frank Sinatra sitting down with the cold trio, Nat King Cole tickling the ivories. Let's take a listen. Say Nat... I know that every chance you get, you give a break to a promising young vocalist. Of course, I'm not so young and not so promising, but couldn't I sing one with you, Nat? Huh, please, hey? Okay. Folks, Nat is thinking it over. He's looking down at the keyboard. I'm in. I get to sing with the famous King Cole Trio. I know why I've waited. Know why I've been blue. I prayed each night for someone Exactly like you Now why should we spend money On a show or two That's it, I get some free tickets No one does the love scenes Exactly like you You make me feel so grand I want to hand the world to you You seem to understand Foolish little scheme I'm scheming Dream I'm dreaming Now I know why my mama She taught me to be true Now she meant me for someone Exactly like you And Let's take a listen to the great Nat King Cole singing with another masterful singer of her era, the great late Ella Fitzgerald. In the wrong style Though your smile is lovely It's the wrong smile It's not her smile But such a lovely smile That it's alright with me You can't know how happy 
met, I'm strangely attracted to you. There's someone I'm trying so hard to forget. Don't you want to forget someone too? It's the wrong game. The amazing thing about Nat's voice is that it has the kind of incandescent quality to it. Music historian Will Friedwell once wrote, it's like some kind of magic spell is being cast. Here's what singer Aaron Neville had to say about Nat King Cole. He just hypnotized me. It was like medicine to me. If I had got a spanking or something that day, Nat would smooth it all out. I think Nat was everybody's favorite singer, Neville continued. Ray Charles, Sam Cooke, Marvin Gaye, all of them told me he was their favorite. Everybody wanted to do some Nat King Cole. Frank Sinatra said when he went home, he played Nat King Cole records to relax. In September 1964, Cole began losing weight and experiencing back pain. Cole collapsed with pain after performing at the Sands in Las Vegas, and he was finally persuaded by friends to seek medical help. A malignant tumor on his left lung in an advanced state of growth was observed on a chest X-ray. Cole, who had been a heavy smoker, had lung cancer, and it was expected that he had only months to live. He carried on working against his doctor's wishes and made his final recordings in December of 1964 in San Francisco with an orchestra conducted by Ralph Carmichael released on the album L.O.V.E. shortly before his death. It peaked at number four on the Billboard album charts in the spring of 1965. Let's take a listen. L is for the way you look at me oh is for the only one i see v is very very extraordinary e is even more than anyone that you adore can love is all that i can give to you love is more than just a game for two Two in love can make it Take my heart and please don't break it Love was made for me and you This is Our American Stories, the life of Nat King Cole Celebrated here, nothing more beautiful, nothing more elegant Let's take a listen as we close out the hour to Nat King Cole, because on this day in history, in 1965, Cole died. As always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn and study all of the finer things in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you with their terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Extraordinary is even more than anyone that you adore can love 
Is all that I can give to you Love is more than just a game for two Two and love can't make it Take my heart and please don't break it Love was made for me and you Love was made for me and Love, I was made for me and you. This is Our American Stories, and we've got a treat for you this hour of this day in history that focuses on a name you all know, Steinway, but a man you don't, Henry Steinway, who was born on this day in history in 1797. I know a fine way to treat a Steinway, goes Irving Berlin's song, I Love a Piano. By 1915, Berlin didn't need to explain the word Steinway. It had been the preeminent American piano for more than 50 years. After 1860, most pianos were copies of Steinway's. Chickering, Weber, Mason and Hamlin all came and went. Steinway stayed on top. In the end, the story we are about to bring you is a story about resiliency and the search for freedom. Let's take a listen to that story. As guests dine on succulent roasted fowl and mouth-watering marinated oysters, washing their palates with ice-cold champagne, piano music is in the air. The occasion is the opening of the new Steinway factory in New York on April 1st, 1860. A correspondent from a local newspaper declares, it is conceded that the Steinway piano in make, tone, sweetness, precision and durability is the most perfect instrument of that class to be had anywhere in the world. The road to victory began 63 years earlier in Wolfshagen, a small forest hamlet nestled in the slopes of the Upper Hartz Mountains in northwest Germany, where Heinrich Steinweg, founder of Steinway & Sons, is born. Church records reveal that the Steinwigs were master charcoal burners. They lived in the woods and, like most charcoal burners, were regarded with deep suspicion by townspeople who rarely saw them. Steinwig's childhood is marked by many tragedies and twists of fate. At the age of eight, during a harsh winter, his mother and most of his siblings die from exposure. He is orphaned until his father and brothers, once thought to have been killed in action, return from the Napoleonic Wars and claim him. Then, at 15, he is orphaned once again, penniless and living on the streets. He seeks refuge in the German army. Two years later, he is fighting against Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo on June 18, 1815. Family legend has it that when an advance is made on Napoleon, the charge is signaled by a lone bugler, Heinrich Steinweg. According to this tale, he is awarded a bronze medal for bugling in the face of the enemy, 
when not heading off to battle, he is in the barracks, making mandolins and other instruments, and occasionally striking up a tune with the military band. After six years of military service, Steinweg begins an apprenticeship with the church organ builder. He is also introduced to the piano through his Jewish friend Karl Brand. Steinweg learns to build a piano by copying Brands. As he changes the pipes of church organs, he becomes interested in notes, octaves, and chords. Thirsting for knowledge, he appears every Friday evening at his church to listen to the organist rehearse for Sunday services. Every German craftsman in 1835 has to belong to a guild. Since Heinrich Steinweg doesn't have a master craftsman diploma as an instrument maker, he's not allowed to build pianos officially. So he becomes a cabinet maker. But he's still very much interested in building instruments. He has restored, uh, I think, many instruments. He has seen them, he has compared them, and he has made his own uh, concept, his own piano, at that time for him, who was better than the instruments he has seen around him. Apart from being skilled in working with wood and special tools, building a keyboard instrument requires musicality and a complex knowledge of mathematics and physics. But Steinweg relies on intelligence and intuition. The cabinet maker decides to start building forte pianos and courts a woman he falls madly in love with, Juliana Tima, the daughter of a well-established glove maker. For the wedding, Steinweg wants to impress his sweetheart with a very unusual gift. Oh my goodness! Is that for me? Did you make this? Of course. Can I play it? In 1835, he gives his bride his first square piano that he designs himself. It sounds wonderful. Here's Heinrich Steinweg's descendant, Miles Chapin. That is consistent a little bit with this image of a businessman. I mean, if, if your first product is very complex and technically complicated, you don't want to sell it because it might break, in which case your reputation is ruined before it's even been made. So for him to take his first piano and give it to his wife... I think that's wonderful. Here, you, you play this, honey, and tell me if it works, you know. Newly wed and raring to go, Heinrich Steinweg starts working and wants to build not only good pianos, but the best pianos in the world. With meticulousness and passion, he begins building his first grand piano in 1836, which he later sells to the Duke of Brunswick for 3,000 marks. This piano is later named the Kitchen Piano and is now on display at the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art, along with the square piano he gave to his wife. I believe he started out as a cabinet maker, but if you think about it from a businessman's point of view, with the amount of labor and the amount of time it takes to make one thing that's this big, okay, if this thing is a chest of drawers, you can sell it for X. But if this thing that you're making is a piano, and takes longer to make, you can sell it for five times X, six, ten times X, so that his product could be more valuable to him and his profit margins would be greater. I don't think he was driven musically at all. I don't think he was driven creatively at all. I think he was purely, my take is a purely a businessman, and he had a product that was a higher value product, and he would get a higher profit from it. Easier to transport, easier to build at home. He could have one at a time going. Uh, and that was why he went into it. 
And when we come back, more on the life of Henry Steinway, born on this day in history in 1797. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. More after these messages. our American stories and you're hearing a Steinway piano being played. That's Rachmaninoff. And Henry Steinway is the focus of this hour, born on this day in history in Germany in 1797. And by the way, so many of our this day in history stories when they're about business and they're back century and two centuries ago are about immigrants. And by the way, even our Andy Grove story, which actually was just a less the this day in history story than a celebration of his life. And he's one of the powerhouses behind Intel. Another amazing immigration story and an immigrant story. We pick up things where we left off. Steinweg's first grand piano is an enormous success. To meet the growing demand, Heinrich Steinweg decides to train his young boys. Even his five-year-old has to help out in the workshop. His musically talented daughter, Doretta, is only allowed to watch. The crafts are strictly for men. With the help of his sons, Steinweg can make 10 to 12 instruments a year. Then, in 1848, riots engulf most of Europe because of political instability and economic uncertainty, spawning movements towards socialism. Heinrich's second son, Charles, is on the front lines in the fight for the people's sovereignty against an absolutist prince and the civil liberties for the Christian middle class. The socialist revolution fails to produce a redistribution of wealth, land, or power. But it did paralyze businesses throughout Europe, thereby encouraging businessmen like Heinrich Steinweg to consider leaving. Fearing reprisals for their son, Charles leaves Germany and sails to New York City in 1849 where he is to find a safe haven both for himself and for the Steinweg piano business. In June 1849, Charles lands in New York, the heart of professional music making in America and of America's piano industry. The other major piano manufacturing cities are Boston, Baltimore, and Philadelphia, all centers for German immigrants. Pianos have only been in America since the Revolution, most of them brought in from shipwrecks by pirates as part of their booty. The rest were imported by John Jacob Astor, the German millionaire fur trader, who occasionally bartered furs for pianos. Beloved parents, brothers and sisters. Six weeks after his arrival, Charles writes to his family for the first time. New York seems to be an El Dorado for keyboard instruments. I soon found employment with a piano manufacturer, 
it's a pretty well-paying job. The growth of wealth in the United States promises great opportunities for piano manufacturers. You'll hardly believe it, but in nearly every household there's a piano. Family music is a part of daily life here. Be courageous and do not hesitate for too long. It was a time of great political upheaval in Germany, uh, in Europe, all through Europe. Um, it was not a climate conducive to business. And the Steinways, if anything, were businessmen. And Heinrich, if anything, was a businessman. And he lived in this small town in the Harz Mountain region, Zazen. And he made his pianos one by one at home. But to sell them, he had to take them places. And to take them places, he had to cross borders. And when he crossed borders, there were tariffs, there were added costs that weren't going into his pocket. And he was ambitious. I think he just decided rationally to leave Germany to set up a shop in New York City. On May 28, 1850, the Steinbigs, along with their three daughters and three sons, board the first German ocean liner in Hamburg. On her maiden voyage, the Steinbigs reached New York City in just 30 days. Their eldest son, Theodor, stays in Germany to run the rest of the company. When the Steinbigs arrive, they face no restrictions, no questions, no Ellis Island, and no Statue of Liberty. They quickly move into a small rented apartment on Hester Street, in the middle of a quarter that's known as Little Germany. The Steinbigs apartment is certainly very different from their spacious home back in Germany. With more than 600,000 German immigrants, New York is a German enclave. By 1860, one out of every four New Yorkers is German-born. Only Berlin and Vienna have more German citizens. These Germans brought with them a classical music culture which didn't exist in America. Here's Kathleen Hulser from the New York Historical Society, speaking to us on St. Mark's Place just between 2nd and 3rd Avenues. On this street, you could see how busy and productive Germans were when they got to America. There would be pretzel sellers along this street, people selling cabbage, women selling clothes. And the Germans were really good at founding their own groups. They liked to get together and do things together. So they had Turnverein, a club for men. They had their beer gardens where the whole family would go. And they had things like a gun club, which you can see right on this street. It's still here. The gun club, the Schutzengesellschaft, is something that was not just about shooting targets, it was also about men enjoying each other's company and drinking beer. The Steinwigs didn't go into business right away. Instead, they decided to work for others until they got their feet on the ground and learned some English and New York methods. Heinrich and his sons select the best New York piano makers to work for so that they can learn the latest and finest techniques. But three years after their arrival, an economic depression hits New York. Heinrich's sons are unemployed, and he's earning a very low day's pay as an employed piano maker. But giving up is out of the question. Don't worry, Juliana. I've got a plan. In these times of instability, the piano maker quits his job and opens his own workshop with his sons. They no longer have very much to lose. But with this move, they now have the potential 
to achieve a lot. To help with sales, business friends advised the Steinvigs to Americanize their name. And so Heinrich Steinvig becomes Henry Steinway. A humble attic on Varick Street, just below Canal Street on the west side of Manhattan, becomes their first company headquarters. On March 5, 1853, with only a verbal contract and a capital investment of just $6,000, the family-owned company called Steinway & Sons is founded. It was a good time to be in the piano business. Musical life in America was flourishing, and the piano was at the center of the increasing interest in music. Music in the home was seen as medicine for the soul and a stimulant for romance. Most piano pupils were women, other instruments being seen as detracting from feminine attractiveness. The cello demanded that a woman spread her legs, and the harp ruined her posture. But at the piano, she could sit demurely with her feet together. Even courtship increasingly took place at the keyboard. Now, my mother was the Steinway in the family, and she had four older brothers who she watched one by one go off and work at the family business. So naturally, when she came of age, she asked her father, when do I start in the family business? And the story goes that he brought her to the piano and said, come here, open the piano, read me what it says in the piano, Steinway and Sons, please, don't embarrass me. There's no women at Steinway and Sons, even my secretary is a man. Close the lid of the piano, forget it. Here's Andy Horbachevsky, Vice President of Steinway & Sons, New York. What was amazing to me is that in the 10 years from um, 1853 to 1860, when they started the factory, the very big factory um, on, on Park Avenue here, they went from scratch to building the most pian grand pianos of any other piano manufacturers. And I think that's a credit to not only the excellent design and craftsmanship, but they were tremendous, I think, businessmen and marketers and salesmen. And more on Henry Steinway after these messages born on this day in history in 1797. And as always, our This Days in History are always brought to us by the fine folks at Hillsdale College, where you study all the things that matter in life. If you're a student there, philosophy, art, education itself also consists of sports there. And, well, of course, the Constitution and our founders. This day in history, Henry Steinway. The story continues, and it just gets better after these messages.
night, my angel, time to close your eyes and save these questions for another day. I think I know what you've been asking me. I think you know what I've been trying to say. I promised I would never leave you, and you should always know. Wherever you may go, no matter where you are, I never will be far away. This is our American stories: the life of Henry Steinway. Being celebrated for the hour, born on this day in history in 1797. And we're playing Billy Joel for a reason. He said this about Steinway. I've long admired Steinway pianos for their quality of tone, clarity, pitch, consistency, touch, responsiveness, and superior craftsmanship. And thus Steinway continues to live on. With so many artists who performed, Diana Krall, Harry Connick Jr., Irving Berlin only played Steinways, George Gershwin, Vladimir Horowitz, Cole Porter, the list goes on and on. And with that, let's go back to the story of Henry Steinway. Each Steinway & Sons grand piano is handcrafted and comprises 12,000 individual parts, assembled by as many as 450 people. The process takes over a year to complete. Although it's always the same construction plans and materials, no two pianos ever sound alike. Steinway Grand Pianos all have their own individual sound and personality. Here's Lang Lang, who is considered by many to be one of the finest concert pianists of all time. Lang compares the best pianos to great actors for their ability to convey extremes of emotion and attitude. It was the flamboyant pianism in a Tom and Jerry cartoon, he says, that originally drew him to the instrument. I had a great privilege to go to um, both uh, Steinway factories in New York uh, and in Hamburg. And uh, the people who work there, they, they, they are really work into the very detailed work. Um, it's a big monster, right? I mean, it's huge, but when they start working, Almost like you found that they're, they're working on a Swiss watch. It's so detailed, everything's so precise, like they're making a violin or making some smaller item, you know. And, and that precise work really transferred uh, to, um, to the sound. There is a unique person in Steinway's factory, the one who makes the final tuning for all pianos before delivery. With an expert touch, he can quickly discern the questionable keys and makes chalk marks. Then he patiently adjusts the hammers to achieve the perfect string strokes. Because of his acute gift, he is known as Steinway's ear. Walter Boot is the heart and soul of Steinway and & Sons and has been working in the piano factory in New York for over 50 years. Not a single Steinway piano leaves the building until it satisfies his absolute hearing. My job is to even out the tone. I get the piano, the piano is all done, ready to go to somebody's house. And I like fine tune it. I listen to it, I play it, I make it 
all the town even. So I'm happy with it. When I'm happy with it, I know you're going to be happy with it. I love working with Chinway. Chinway did my whole life. They call me Uncle Wally because I worked here so long. When the piano come here, it looked like a piano. When it leaves, it sounds like a piano. So I put the, the love into the piano. Mozart, Rachmaninoff. So it is a, a really a circle of refinement. As the piano moves to the end of the line, we're constantly working on the pianos. We're constantly trying to get that last, uh, that last ounce of, of tone out of it. We will baby that hammer. We will pull out as much as we can. If there was any single patent that made the most difference, it would be the overstrung one-piece cast iron frame. That's what differentiated the Steinway piano in its day. It was the first piano company to bring a grand piano with a one-piece cast iron frame to market successfully. They first showed it in 1867 in Paris. And pretty much you can measure the history of the piano from the time running up to that point and the time running away from that point. Because today you can't buy a piano that doesn't have a one-piece cast iron overstrung frame. But before that time, there were none. Together with his sons, Henry Steinway sees himself heading in the right direction. And his success proves him right. His credo is the same as ever to build the best pianos in the world. You see pictures of him, and there's only a couple of them, and he was ramrod straight, and his fists jammed into his pocket, and his set of his jaw just like this. He was very determined, determined to make a successful company, to make a success of his life in the United States, to give his children a better life than he had. I think it's that classic American story. The Steinway's future depends first on skill, then on national recognition to boost sales. The company founder has an ingenious idea. He realizes that the renowned pianists and composers of the time are the ideal advertisers for Steinway & Sons. So he signs the acclaimed artists exclusively to Steinway. They are not bashful. They are not afraid to tell us if something is not 100% with the piano itself. So we are very lucky to have this very good feedback information coming back to us from this very valuable part of our customer base, the concert artist. They then built the Steinway Hall. Here in the Steinway Hall is where concerts took place. When you wanted to go to the concert hall, you had to walk through the exhibition rooms. And so, naturally, they did even more advertising for the pianos with that. The New York Times wrote at the time, the Steinways can be proud that they own the most magnificent piano business in the whole world. Today, over 95% of the world's finest pianists prefer Steinway pianos for their concerts. At 67, Henry Steinway has fulfilled all his dreams. Reputation, wealth, 
and fame. But then, tragedy strikes. On March 11, 1865, Henry Jr. dies of consumption at the age of just 35. Then, just days later, Henry's other son Charles dies of typhoid fever while visiting his brother in Germany. It must have been devastating to Henry Steinway. I mean, to lose not only one son, but two sons. I mean, of course, that was an era where people died more easily. You didn't live as long and children died. But it was very, very difficult for him, especially you know, being an immigrant. I mean, his whole family he brought with him. They were here. And when it's diminished by two, well, he did have the one son back in Germany, but when it's diminished the number that are in New York by two, that was when they wanted to bring C.F. Theodore over to, you know, strengthen the family. It is William's job now to keep the family business running. He writes to his brother, Theodore, in Germany that they desperately need him in New York. And three weeks later, brothers William and Theodore form the perfect company management. Theodore invents groundbreaking features for grand piano mechanisms, and William knows how to sell them. Their success starts spiraling. This is Our American Stories, the life of Henry Steinway, born on this day in history in 1797, the final segment after these messages. to hear somebody play upon a piano a grand piano it simply carries me away show them how to do it Ralph I love the fine way he plays a stein way I love to watch his fingers or the keys, the ivories, and with his pedal, he loves to meddle. Not only music from Broadway, he's so delighted when he's invited to hear some long-haired genius play. So you can keep your fiddle and your bow, give me a B-I-A-N-O-O-O, I love to stop right up to and up. This is Our American Stories, you're listening to Tony Bennett and the great Ralph Sharon. And Bennett is one of those folks. His keyboard players always play a Steinway, too. We pick up where we left off. The skill set, the way that the talents of the sons meshed, is really what made the difference. Because on the one hand, you had C.F. Theodore Steinway engineering the piano differently. But then on the other hand, you had his brother, William Steinway, who was changing the way you sold pianos, changing the marketing of pianos. And so when you had a company that had a demonstrably finer product coupled with uh, a CEO, a corporate officer, who knew how to sell that product and was innovative in the ways he was selling that product, boom, it came together and it just made a, a, a sum greater than the sum of the parts. Then in 1863, those parts were attacked by the Manhattan Workers' Union strikes. When the Furniture Makers Union decided to target the piano industry, Steinway was the biggest, the, had the most prominent name, and they decided to target Steinway & Sons. I think William Steinway was 
tremendously surprised by that. Surprised, insulted, nonplussed, and he was shocked. Uh, his workers say he treated them as if they were his children. I mean, he had a very patronizing, in the best sense of the word, attitude towards his workers. He felt that he was their patron. He was their father figure. Um, at that time, he had a country house out here in Bowery Bay in Queens. And I think he had a revelation one day. He said, wait a minute. New York's over there. I have a house here. Here's all this land. The water, the ocean is right there. I can bring my warm materials in here. I can move my factory here. And I think he deliberately set about doing that, buying the acreage out here, um, moving the company out piece by piece, digging the tunnel underneath the East River. You know, the Steinway Tunnel was the first tunnel under the East River. I took it this morning when I took the subway into Manhattan. The number seven train goes through the William Steinway Tunnel. To get the workers out of the social unrest and union riots in Manhattan, Steinway has his Steinway Village built in Astoria, Queens. And he built gymnasiums, and libraries, churches, housing for his workers, and a lot of it is still there. Um, you can see on the streets, you know, the streets have been renamed, you know, 30th Avenue, 31st Street, but you can go to some of the housing that was the factory housing, and you can see chiseled on stone on the side of the building, Albertstrasse, Friedrichstrasse, and that was the names that William Steinway had for his original city. Then, in 1880, Theodor will return to Germany in order to open and operate a second factory in Hamburg, Germany. Since then, they have split the global market into two parts. New York supplies North and South America, and Hamburg the rest of the world. And there are subtle differences. Certainly a little in terms of just the, the finish and the high gloss versus the satin look. But there are also, also some uh, tonal differences in terms of how the tone is perceived. From our perspective as a global company, uh, we like the choice. There are artists that prefer the New York instrument in, in Europe and vice versa, that in, in, the, in North America here, some prefer the Hamburg. We think that offering a choice is good and um, we will not change that in the future. The 150-year-old company produces about 2,000 handmade nine-foot concert grand pianos a year, compared with the approximately 100 a day by other companies. These magnificent instruments do not come cheap. One is shown in the Steinway showroom here in New York on West 57th Street with a price tag of $103,000. No wonder a prospective buyer is very particular in choosing a specific piano. Each handmade instrument has its own personality. Some yield brighter sounds, while others have deeper, more muted timbres. The limited production hinges a lot on the brand's quite severe selection standards for timber. After all, 85% of the Steinway piano is made from wood. Precious timbers from all over the world are neatly stacked in Steinway's warehouses and there they spend two years in their natural drying process before the next step. Space between them ensures good air circulation and the pliability of wood. After the drying process, only 50 to 60 percent pass the rigorous quality checks to become piano parts. As the soundboard is the central part of a piano, the design and selection of the materials for it must be meticulous. The artisans select the finest North American spruce. Spruce 
has the desired regular grain to ensure a smooth resonance. Only 5 to 10% of the timber from one tree can be used for the handmade soundboard by the experienced artisans. Australian concert pianist Piers Lane has specially flown to Hamburg to choose three concert grands for his hometown, Sydney. Which works as well. There's a, a singing sound with quality. Now, it'd be interesting to compare that with the one down the end, say. So we start with the same thing. Piers is attended to by a Steinway & Sons sales consultant, Garrett Glonner who jots down notes while following peers around a brightly lit showroom filled with Steinway Grand Pianos. I don't feel it's got the same fineness of quality as the other one in the tone, but let's try some Mozart. got the same depth of character as the other one. The other one's got more core to the sound. I want to compare that now with the first one. After a sound test marathon of six and a half hours, the pianist is just about to choose the three Steinway Grands that he finds worth considering among the huge selection. It's interesting because it makes me play it in a slightly different way, this piano. How do you feel, Garrett? The middle one is a kind of a in mix between. of both. It's true. But yeah. uh, if I should use the term noblesse, yes. I would find it most in this Very one because this there's yeah. some extra glints on, yeah. on each note. And I think yeah. it has a beautiful cantabile. I like the balance of the piano. Exactly. It feels you know, even across the whole range. But at the same time, it has the classical... Um, transparency as well in the texture. Periodically, there has been in the history of the piano, uh, the death bell has been summoned or been struck. You know what happened in the 1920s when player pianos started and when radio came on? People said, oh, well, nobody will listen to pianos anymore. After World War II, with hi-fi and television, people said, oh, people won't have pianos anymore. In the 50s, with electric pianos and Hammond organs, oh no, people will never need pianos anymore. Didn't happen then, hasn't happened now, you know? And still people are, are, are improving, tinkering, as you say, a little bit with the piano, just trying to find small improvements to it. But there's nothing that can replace it. Nothing can replace the sound of a grand piano, well played. After 74 years, in 1871, an unusual life journey comes to an end. A journey that took the orphan from the Hartz Mountains in Germany to the highest highs of music. Courage, perseverance, and family were his strengths. After 150 plus years of turmoil, feuds, depression, wars, competition from the Far East, and people increasingly wanting their music from radios, records, cassettes, 
compact discs, and MP3 players, nothing has silenced the Steinway sound. Even if what Steinway is now selling is its past, rather than any technical innovations. A New York Times reporter referred to the Steinway factory as a resilient treasure in a city that wonders whether it has lost its soul. With his Steinway and Sons piano, Henry Steinway has made himself immortal. And great job on that as always, Greg. We love these hours. And by the way, only 50% of companies will survive the first five years of business. Only a third will survive 10. In family-owned businesses, 70% fail in the second generation, 88% dead on arrival by the third generation. And Steinway, my goodness, still thriving and on a fifth generation. This is Our American Stories, an immigrant story, an American enterprise story, an American exceptionalism story. It's all there, and it's tied to art and commerce, as it always is. This is Our American Stories, and as always, our This Day in History, brought to us by the great people and the great folks at Hillsdale College. <laughs> 